reading this morning from Psalm 122. A song of ascents of David. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all the dads. It's fun to be together on Father's Day. And I just want to say I'm thankful for my dad. I'm going to try and embarrass him. He's here somewhere, right? Excellent. There he is. There he is. Hi, Dad. Thanks. Thanks for being my dad. I'm, and I thank God for you and for the dad that you've been to me and to my siblings. And um, Dad uh, spoke the gospel to us from the very beginning, and, and I'm incredibly thankful for him. The thing that maybe that I respect most, there's a lot of things that I respect about my dad. Um, and you know a lot of his gifts, his teaching gifts, and the way he cares for people and counsels people. The thing that I maybe respect most is um, I'm not sure that I know anybody who is more faithful and consistent in his time with the Lord than my dad. Um, when I was growing up, all of us kids knew where, we would, where dad would be in the morning if we got up early. We always knew that he would be on the couch with his Bible, studying God's word and praying uh, for us and for um, you and for... Um, and so I, I'm just incredibly thankful for that example and I really respect that in you, Dad. So thanks and happy Father's Day. I haven't actually got to shake his hand and say happy Father's Day today yet, but happy Father's Day. Some of us have had fathers like mine who are a good example of Christ. Imperfect, but a good example of our Heavenly Father. A good picture of what a Heavenly Father, or what our Heavenly Father is like. Some of us have had um, less good examples of and less good pictures of what our Heavenly Father is like. Um, Whatever your father uh, was like, this Father's Day, I pray that you can honor your earthly dad and you can connect with and honor and worship your Heavenly Father. So pray for your dad today, and I pray that we fathers, those of us who are fathers, will take the opportunity to serve our kids, to bless them with the grace and love and mercy that we have received from our Heavenly Father. May He equip and empower us dads by His Spirit for the difficult but wonderful gift of fatherhood. And may he use us to reveal his life and character to our kids. One of the ways that I'm excited to send my, to teach the word to my kids is send them to VBS this week. And this week I was here um, yesterday and the last couple days and there's this cool time machine that's going to be on the, on the stage, kind of covering the stage. And the kids are going back in time. They're going to blast from the past is the theme for VBS this week. 
And um, so I hope that they're all going to actually go through the time machine. It's going to actually send them to the past and they'll actually meet those figures. My guess is it's more that they won't actually be going there, but there's a cool time machine anyway for them. (laughs) The kids are going to the past this week. We are going to the future. We're walking through the same time machine. Uh, We're headed to the New Jerusalem. We're headed all the way into the future. Because it's definitely easier to travel a hard road when you know that the destination is worth the trip. I remember long road trips to grandma's house, like when we lived in Colorado and we were traveling to Burns, Oregon, where grandma lived. And so that drive is long and it's Wyoming for a lot of it. And we're in an old Dodge Aries and there's three of us kids at the time. And this was before the days of minivans with DVD players. This is, you know, not fun. Um... But I was old enough that then, when I was complaining about the length of the trip, or complaining about my siblings, or complaining about Wyoming, that I knew that the end of the journey would make all of the complaining, not the complaining, all the difficulty, the end would make the difficulty worth the trip. I knew that grandma's house, the joy of being at grandma's house, far outweighs anything that we had to struggle through, and we were inconvenienced by on the journey. The destination sometimes makes the trip worth it, right? That's our job today, to climb into the time machine and go get a glimpse of the end of our journey so that we can be motivated for taking the trip. So pray with me. Father, thank you for your blessings to us. Thanks for dads. Thanks for my dad and the blessing that he is and the blessings that dads can be to us. And thank you for your scriptures. Teach us this morning and give us a vision of where you are bringing your people Invite us and draw us to yourself. Encourage us on our faith journeys and use those journeys to make us more like Jesus by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A little bit of background. We're on week three of our journey through the Psalms of Ascent. Remember week one, we looked around and we saw we're in exile. This place is not our home. This is a culture built on lies and violence and we are a people of peace and truth. So we looked around. We need to make a journey. Last week, Psalm 121, we looked and we saw the journey and we're like, that journey is going to be difficult. We need help. And we saw that the Lord, the one who creates the heavens and the earth, the one who guards Israel is also the one that guards us on our journeys of faith. He is our help for the journey. When we don't think we can make it, he's helping us. He's there for us. Today in Psalm 122, we're going to see we have a destination. We can't really see it very well on our picture, which is intentional, by the way, but The picture up at the top is the temple, is Jerusalem itself, and then the temple in Jerusalem. We've got a destination. We're going someplace. The destination will make the journey, the hardships of the journey, worth it. There are three main options for when this psalm might have been written. And I I find it interesting that with all of those options, Jerusalem is not the city that's described in Psalm 122. Three options. Maybe David's time. At David's time, there was no temple. The house of the Lord had not yet been built. So if this psalm was written in David's time, he's not describing the city of Jerusalem as he knows it. The second option would be if if it was written during exile, in which case the temple had been destroyed, the city of Jerusalem is in ruins. And so again, the city that he's describing is not the city of Jerusalem as it stood in his day. And the third option would be after exile, before Jesus, In which case, there was a temple. It was kind of a second-rate temple. It didn't have the glory of Solomon's temple. 
and Israel was under foreign occupation. So when it talks about the thrones that where justice pours out, those thrones were not in Jerusalem. The thrones where rule came from were in foreign cities. So whenever we place the writing of this psalm, Psalm 122, the psalmist is not describing Jerusalem as he knows it. He's describing a future Jerusalem. He's describing a day that has not yet come. He's describing what he knows God has promised and what he hopes and believes will happen in the future. As Christians, we also believe in a future city that we have not seen, we cannot see fully yet, but we hope for. And because God has promised it, we trust that it's coming. We have to hop in our time machine in order to see what's coming. We're not walking around Boise going, this is the new Jerusalem. At least I hope not. That's, that's a bummer. Sorry, that might not be worth the journey, I think. In Revelation, God gives us a picture of what the new Jerusalem will look like. We have a picture of the end. As Steve read to us during his prayer this morning, Revelation 21 and 22, God has promised us a new Jerusalem where he will dwell with his creation, where he will rule over all the nations in love and grace and justice, and where we will finally be all, we will finally be and live in that great peace and contentment which we long for and in which we hope. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God after God has destroyed all evil, wiped out the beast, defeated Satan, defeated death itself, and finally judged all of humanity. There will be no sin left. Nothing that opposes God will be around. He who created the heavens and the earth will at that point fulfill all of his purposes for creation. The new heavens and new earth will be here. For those who love Jesus and declare him to be Lord, the new Jerusalem, that's our destination. We really are citizens of that kingdom, that Jerusalem, that place where there will be no more evil and where where God will set all things right. The Israelite pilgrims three times a year would set out to reach Jerusalem, travel this difficult path for their religious feasts, and they would sing these Psalms of Ascent on the journey. And I imagine this particular psalm would remind them that their pilgrim journeys lead them to Jerusalem, that their commitment to following Yahweh, the Lord, helped them to participate in the great kingdom that they hadn't seen yet, but would come when the Lord set everything right. Or if they were singing this psalm from exile, I imagine it reminded them that the Lord would bring them back into the land and set everything right again. In other words, there is an end to evil. This is not it and an end to their journeying, and it will be great. Similarly, as Christians, we are on the same journey of faith from this land in which we are in exile. We are not home. Things are not right in this culture or in any culture. The Kennings just described for us the Czech Republic. Things are not right there either. We are journeying to the new Jerusalem where God will live and where he will set things right. God has called us on this journey As we saw last week, he's our help on the journey, and he has given us a destination. Verse 1 starts with rejoicing. It's time to go to Jerusalem, to the house of the Lord. The pilgrims are gathering to start their trek, start their journey to Jerusalem for the purpose of going to see the house of the Lord, the temple, the place where God dwells. The temple is glorious, not because it's a great building, but because that's where God shows up the place he has chosen to come and live with his people. The presence of the Lord is the great longing in all of our souls. 
from the Garden of Eden all through Scripture, we see that we were made to walk with God and have intimacy with Him. One of God's favorite pictures for us in the Old Testament about how He relates to His people is the picture of marriage. We see this in the Song of Solomon and Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel. It's all over the place. God wants to relate to His people like that intimacy of marriage. We were made for intimacy, deep intimacy with God. In particular, our culture has perverted this longing for intimacy. Decided it's not intimacy with God we're after, it's intimacy itself. And then they've taken that intimacy and made it sexual. So we perverted intimacy with God and turned it into sexual intimacy. As though that's what we're really after. Of course, that's a mistake. That's a cheapened, but that's cheapens a wonderful but incomplete picture of intimacy. Revelation 21 and 22 gives us a different picture where we're married to God himself. We're married to the lamb. Revelation 21 describes the the marriage feast, the wedding feast of the lamb. We were made to be married, to have deep abiding intimacy with God. In the new Jerusalem, God will walk with us and he will be so close to us that we don't need a temple because a temple divides as much as it brings together. God will be the light, it says, by which we see. For now, we experience the world and have to search and try to figure out where God is in the world. In the New Jerusalem, that will work the other way, where we'll see God and we'll see everything else through God. We will experience God and we will interpret all that we experience through him. All that we see will be God. All that we hear will be God. Our smell, our taste, our touch, all will be God-infused. Our breathing in will be God, and our breathing out will be God, and everything that we touch and know experience will be God, and God will be all in all. Amen. In verses 3 to 5, the psalmist talks about the greatness of the city of Jerusalem itself. He says it's well-built, it's compact, it's unified and unifying, a place where all of the tribes go up, to worship the Lord, and from which leadership and justice and uh, leadership and justice will go out to the nation of Israel and then to the surrounding nations as well. Again, that's the picture that we get in this psalm. In Israel's lived history, there was only a very short period of time when that was the case. The end of David's reign and then Solomon's reign. After Solomon, the tribes split and the nation of Israel becomes the, the tribes of the north and then Judah is the tribes of the south. And then the northern kingdom is carried off by Assyria. And then the tribes remain separated. The prophet Ezekiel talks about a future reunion of the tribes, but that's in the future for most of Israel's existence. And again, after the exile, the thrones set for justice are located in some other city. They're not located in Jerusalem because they're occupied. So again, when the psalmist talks about this well-built, unified city with tribes and thrones, He's imagining a future version of the city. Again, the picture of this place where people come and are unified and working together, where justice reigns, that touches another of the deep longings of the human soul. We really want justice. We really want harmony and unity. There's all kinds of of different visions. Everybody has a vision for what peace and harmony might look like. Remember, that's the the great um, answer for any beauty pageant. Uh, question. I want world peace. And the UN has a vision for that. ISIS has a vision for world peace. 
Every nation has a vision for world peace. The modern world has one vision. The American vision is something like a consumerist technological peace where all of our desires are filled and we're protected by our military. Our military kind of keeps everything going. Our consumerist desires get filled. Psalm 122 invites us into a biblical vision. The harmony we are seeking is ultimately a harmony of worship because we're all submitted to the rule and justice of the Lord. So we're all working together for the same goals and seeking the good of one another. Verse 3 talks about architecture, but the density of the language suggests that the unity and togetherness is more than architecture, more than buildings. The Hebrew reads something like, Jerusalem is built together. She's united in togetherness to herself. Again, it's very compact language. There are a few different Hebrew words there that suggest togetherness and unity. The city all works together for its community, for its inhabitants, and for those who enter it. Both architecturally it works for them, and spiritually. It's a proper godly community, where the whole community serves those who live there, and also serves anyone else who shows up. One of the ancient commentaries on this text even talks about the architecture as having an economic function. The city was built so that ownership is not divided, with one person owning one part and another another. But the city is single, immutable, invariable, and all share in it. In other words, in the New Jerusalem, as in Jerusalem, all share in the blessings of this beautiful city. Here at Cole, that's one of the, the goals of our growth group ministry. We talk about, in the growth group ministry, we talk about gospel learning, gospel loving, and gospel living. We learn the gospel, and that's our foundation. And then we love one another well, hopefully, so that everybody in the group is blessed. And then we love one another well enough so that we bless other people. Uh, The design of Christian community is that we love one another well in such a way that we bless those who are outside of the community. We're always blessing beyond the boundaries of the community. Like the Kenning family that we heard from, or the Matamoruses who came into town, or the Manning family who are coming into town this week, they're part of our community, but they're blessing way beyond the boundaries of what most of us can reach. They're, they're continuing God's work in other places, centered here, and hopefully we love them well so that they're equipped to go do what God's called them to do. But they're blessing beyond our boundaries. Verse 4 points out that the tribes are there. As we've already seen, there wasn't actually very much time when all the tribes went up to Jerusalem to worship together. But here we have the purpose for their going up and for their unity, to give thanks to the Lord, to Yahweh. Again, we have these different versions of peace and different versions of unity. But the biblical unity that we see is based on worship. The kingdom of God, unity in the kingdom of God is based on worshiping the one true God. We can all work together and trust one another and serve others together because we're all worshiping the same God. And verse 5 points out that the reason that we worship is because he has established thrones for judgment. Justice pours out of the kingdom of God. And because it pours out, we can give him thanks. We praise him because he is the great God above all gods. And Jesus is the great king above all kings. And his kingdom is coming and invading our world. And he will defeat all evil and banish it from his creation. And he will establish the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, which will be full of justice and goodness and grace and mercy and love. 
He will rule it and protect it. And so because of that, we give thanks. Jesus has defeated the powers of sin when he went to the cross and he defeated death when God raised him from the dead. And he continues to work to eliminate evil until all that is left will be the kingdom of God and creation will be righteous and good just as God created it to be. So not only all the tribes of Israel, but also all peoples and all tribes and all nations and all tongues will worship the Lord together in the new Jerusalem under a fair and a just king who has defeated all evil and chaos. So those who worship Jesus as king are all in harmony and we are all united because he is establishing his rule over all creation. Praise the Lord. The word peace dominates this last stanza, verses six to nine. That word shalom, peace. Importantly, I think the stanza is built around blessing or praying for peace. It's perhaps another reminder that peace has not yet come. It's still coming. It's still future. The people of God are still waiting for the kind of peace that the psalmist describes. In verses six to seven, there's a link between peace and prosperity. When there is true peace in the new Jerusalem, then people can really prosper. When the new Jerusalem is fully established and God is with his people and reigning fully over his creation, then people can really be wealthy. Early Christian theologian Augustine talks about wealth this way. How have they, the wealthy, become rich? Because they gave here what they received from God for a season and are going to receive there what God will afterwards pay back forevermore. Here, my brothers, here, even rich men are poor. It's a good thing for a rich man to acknowledge that he's poor. Let him own himself empty that he may be filled. Compared with the wealth of the New Jerusalem, even Bill Gates is poor. Wealth here just doesn't matter very much. Any of us who is blessed to see the New Jerusalem will be more wealthy than the wealthiest person here just by walking its streets and breathing its air. Wealth here is nothing. Wealth there is wealth. In verse 8, the psalmist says that he will speak a blessing of peace over Jerusalem for the sake of his brothers and friends. We need each other on this journey of faith, I think is what he's saying. We need each other because we motivate and encourage each other. Just like verse 1, the psalmist hears someone else say, let's go up to the house of the Lord, and he gets excited. His heart jumps at that opportunity. Yes, I forgot. Now it's time to go. That's exciting to me. We need to be motivated by each other and need to be encouraged, partly because we forget and partly because the journey of faith is hard. It's a hard road to walk. And so sometimes... I will need you to carry me. And sometimes I will need to carry you. We need each other. We need to carry each other, motivate each other, encourage one another on the journey of faith. And the psalm ends with verse 9, where the psalmist is determined to seek the good of Jerusalem because he cares about God and about the place where God meets with his people. We seek peace and goodness because of God, because we love God. God is our motivation for peace. The king of Jerusalem and the king of the new Jerusalem is also the prince of peace who came to make peace in God's creation by giving his life, as we see on the cross, on behalf of that creation. He was killed by us, by those whom he created, but he was raised again 
by the glorious, overcoming resurrection power of God. And when his rule is established in the New Jerusalem, there will be peace, real peace, that brings people together, people who have been at war with one another. And there will be peace that sinks deep into our souls and overcomes our anxieties and our fears. Real peace. We live now in the middle of a fallen creation. And again, we've been part of that group of people who wanted to see Jesus dead. But we can live for peace in the new Jerusalem and seek its good by living now in such a way that when the new Jerusalem comes, it will have less of a fight to get here. The powers of evil and sin and death are fighting as hard as they can to keep the peaceful, just, righteous, life-giving city of New Jerusalem away because they know they're going to be defeated. They know when New Jerusalem comes, the powers of evil, they know that they're going to be gone. They're going to be eliminated. When we work for the good of the New Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, we establish little embassies of that kingdom that help to smooth the coming of the future kingdom. We eliminate the strongholds when we establish the new Jerusalem here and now. So even if we can't see the kingdom now and things still look difficult, we have faith that we know the end of the journey and it's a glorious ending. It's an ending where all of our deepest longings are filled, where God will live with us and be intimate with us, where we will live in harmony with one another and with all of creation under God's rule of righteousness and justice, and where there will be real peace. So what does it mean for us now to live as though we can see the ending, to live as though our journey of faith has a destination, and that destination is a place that we can imagine and for which we hope, even though we can't see it yet? How should we live after we hop in the time machine, go see the ending, and then hop back? It's a bummer. First... We worship our God and we give him thanks. We come here on Sundays and other days and we gather with the people of God, those who he has called, and we let that worship expand our need for God and draw us deeper and deeper into worship of him. So first worship. Second, we seek unity and harmony with all of those who belong to the Lord. If they are seeking Christ and they belong to Christ, then they are our family. Whether we like them or not, whether we think or speak or act like them or not, whether we come from the same place or like the same kinds of things, we belong to one another. Whoever belongs to Jesus and is washed by his blood is my brother or my sister. And our sisters and brothers were killed this week in a horrible tragedy in Charleston, South Carolina. It's true that they weren't killed because of Jesus. They were killed because of the color of their skin but they are our brothers and sisters. There are a whole bunch of things that could be said about this tragedy, but I would want to say that the way that the church community in Charleston has responded has challenged me and encouraged me to want to respond in love and grace and mercy to my enemies. There are any number of examples to point to. Instead of riots or anger or entitlement, we've seen African-American Christians seek the good of this young killer. Before the authorities even caught up with Dylan Roof, he had a Facebook comment from a Christian African-American man urging him to give himself up, to confess, and come to know Jesus. At his first court hearing, there were a number of family members of victims who testified that they love Mr. Roof and are praying for him and begging that God will move in his heart and that he will come to know Jesus as his Savior. 
Appropriately, there's a lot of mourning. There's also a lot of celebrating and remembering the lives of those who were killed. And there are lots of folks seeking the good and well-being of Mr. Roof. These people, our brothers and sisters, are teaching us a few things about living the Jesus life in a world they know is not their home. They are seeing the end of the journey, knowing that Dylan Roof has put his soul in danger, but that their friends who were killed by his gun are glorying in the presence of their God, in a place where God rules with righteousness and justice. The Christian African-American experience in this country has been a difficult one for the last 300 years or so. Those slaves who worshiped Jesus in their slavery spent their days hoping that the end of the journey would be better than the steps they were taking on that day. They built up habits and ways of surviving their horrible reality that recognized that there was more to life than their comforts, of which they had very few. They began the work of building character that would last into eternity because they were not about to get ahead in this world. Their worship pleaded with God and lamented their lives and helped them to imagine a future where justice would reign. So when Martin Luther King Jr. declared that he had a dream, he spoke for an African-American Christian community because they had been living with that dream for hundreds of years. They had been training themselves to hold on to the dream without being able to see if and when that dream might come true. So sisters and brothers, most of us here today have a lot to learn from our African-American brothers and sisters. If we are in exile, as we've been saying, then we will need our African-American siblings to teach us what it means to live as Christians in this culture. Those of us who are white and middle class have mostly known comfort and privilege and instant gratification in general. I confess that I have a lot to learn about what it means to be uncomfortable and oppressed and forced to wait. Our brothers and sisters in Charleston gave us a lesson this week. Join me in praying with them and for them for their experience and for their endurance. Pray that God will give them strength to forgive and continue to forgive. And pray that we can learn from them how to live in exile, how to live Jesus' kingdom life in the middle of the powers of this world. So that's two. First, worship God. How do we live in exile? Worship God. Second, we live in unity with our brothers and sisters. Third, we seek the presence of God and work for the good of the new Jerusalem now. We seek the peace and good of the new Jerusalem when we do the things that make the Lord and his kingdom present in our world now. When we overcome violence with peacemaking. When we overcome evil with good. When we forgive our enemies and pray for them. When we overcome hatred with love. When we free captives. When we take care of the oppressed. When we clothe the naked, feed the hungry, give shelter to the homeless. When we speak the name of Jesus and call on his power in our weakness. When we bring mercy and grace to the guilty and oppressed. When we walk with the ill and offer our touch to the lonely. When we bring the presence of Jesus into our world and overcome the forces of evil and violence and sin, we smooth the road for the coming of the new Jerusalem. We don't make Jesus come by our actions, but we can make the path from heaven more peaceful by overcoming the powers of darkness now. Again, as we set up our embassies for the kingdom of God, there are fewer strongholds for the kingdoms of this world. Fourth, let's be a people who speaks the blessing of peace. Christians throughout history have ended their worship times by speaking the peace of Christ to one another. It's a practice that we've abandoned for no reason that makes any sense to me. 
As Christians, we're called to speak peace at every opportunity. And if we don't speak peace in worship, we'll never have the habits or the courage to speak peace in other places. Another way of speaking peace, I, I used to say no problem when someone would say thank you, no problem, mumble, kind of mumble, no problem. But it, it came to me that I was not giving that person the dignity that they deserve. So now I've learned to say you're welcome and look them in the face and say you're welcome because you deserve dignity. You're welcome to whatever I have because you deserve dignity. You are a child of God. And I've learned to sign my emails and to hang up the phone and say goodbye with a blessing of some kind, if possible. Uh, So I sign my emails, blessings. And just so you know, if you receive that email, blessings, I really do. When I send it, I pray for you. I pray a blessing over you, God's blessing over you. We're a people of peace who can say blessings all the time because God is in us. God is working through us. In the same kind of way, when we say to someone, I'll pray for that or I'll pray for you, do we really pray for that person? Often I've stopped saying I'll pray for that and I said, can can we pray right now? Can I just pray for you in this moment? Partly because then I know I've actually prayed, but partly it gets me in the habit. Oh yeah, I've prayed for this person. I need, need to continue praying for this person. Just a couple of ways that we can say, speak a word of peace, speak a blessing over people. Praise Jesus, we have a wonderful destination where we will dwell in God's presence, where God reigns with unity and justice, and we are surrounded in peace. This journey of faith that we are on is worth the difficult journey. If you are in Jesus, you're on a road worth traveling. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to yourself, and you are making all things new. We look forward to that glorious day when you will rid your creation of evil, when you will make all things new, when you will be all in all. We look forward to the new Jerusalem. We pray that you would help us to live in the light of the end of the journey. And today we pray for our brothers and sisters in Charleston. We mourn with them the loss of these nine saints, and we pray that your light and mercy and redemptive power would be on display. Teach us by the examples of those who have been speaking peace in the middle of violence and chaos. Make us more like Jesus by the power of your spirit. With the groaning creation and all of your people in all times and places, we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.